Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about customer perceived value and all the things all around your organization that it takes to build, grow, develop, deliver, market, sell, and price to customer perceived value. Uh, today, I am really thrilled to have Bill Higgs. Uh, if you're a, a longtime listener, you heard Bill Higgs on one of my first episodes when I was just getting this podcast started. Um, and I wanted to have Bill back because Bill is the specialist on one of the most important topics in, um, in value focus, and that's culture. Bill, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, that book, Culture Code Champions, this past week became a number one bestseller. That's so, great. Uh, I was just going to ask, how's the book doing? So congratulations. Uh, surprised me, but... Uh, Sort of like you, I'm trying to give people the how-tos on creating a culture and uh, really look forward to discussing with you how culture can really work to help value sales. It's going to yeah. be fun. Yeah. And so for people who don't know you, just kind of give the background of, of your work and um, going back to Rangers and Mustang and so <laughs> forth that, that kind of shapes your vision, shapes your outlook, your point of view on culture. Okay, well, you're listening to a gung-ho airborne ranger, bit the head off a chicken in ranger school, <laughs> take no prisoners type of guy. But I love the, uh, the rangers because it was the team everybody wanted to join. And uh, in the army, they called them snake eaters <laughs> because you killed an eight snakes in ranger school. And some people say that's what you were killing when you're out in the real world, too. But it was a term of endearment because people knew that the Rangers were the best of the best. So when I got out and was in the civilian world, uh, it really bugged me in an engineering firm that people just worked seven and a half hours and took one hour lunch breaks and went home and nobody ever talked to each other. So when I started my company, Mustang Engineering in Houston, I wanted to build a team that everybody wanted to join. And so our focus was on culture. Myself and two partners were pretty aligned on that. And we realized in our fourth year that culture was differentiating us from the hundred other engineering firms we were competing against every day in Houston. So we went from three people to 6,500 people from zero to a billion dollars. And it was all based on a differentiated mm. culture. And I think some of what your people will hear about today is how that culture helped us differentiate how we did sales. And I like the link that gets me back to you is that, uh, so I was a sales guy, but I was really an airborne ranger. So I was learning sales on the fly. But once I had 23 salespeople working for me and I had no transparency into what they were doing, I'm going, what are they doing? They're taking these clients out to lunch. They're going hunting with them but what are they doing to deliver a project? And so that's when I discovered Miller Hyman as a 
sort of a framework for me to get some transparency into what salespeople were doing, but also a communication tool between sales and ops and HR and all the different departments within the company. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, Mustang Engineering, engineering firm that sells engineering services to the oil companies, specifically mostly in exploration, uh, facility design and so forth. So designing a uh, designing up all the equipment to go down hole, um, and was it also like uh, refineries and, and midstream? We, we started out deciding, uh, designing offshore oil platforms in the Gulf of Mexico and then followed the oil companies around the world. And we went from when we were doing them in 100 foot of water to doing these floating cities in 7,000 feet of water. And then we started crawling up the pipelines. So we did offshore pipelines, then we did refineries, then we did petrochemical, then we moved into industry. We were doing car manufacturing plants, opened offices around the world. And in every industry, we took this culture and these same seven steps. And in every industry, in every international office, they said, nobody's gonna buy that stuff. It's smoke and mirrors, it's fuzzy warm. And in every case, we changed those industries and the contracts to where they were favorable, they were win-win instead of win-lose. And so that's where I became a big believer because it also changed people's lives because they had continuous work. They didn't have to go look for a job every two years. And that just helped their family situation, their housing situation. And I think the changing lives was one of the things that made that culture get stronger top to bottom through the yeah. organization. Yeah, in that engineering industry, for those of you who haven't, just imagine you're selling a really complex, highly engineered product uh, service uh, to build something. And so the, the, the group of people buying, there's not just a purchasing agent and a couple engineers, it's an army that's involved in buying uh, oh, that, goes, to, that goes up to the C-suite. Oh, yeah. When you go to bid to Exxon, Exxon's like a little country. They've got their own treasury department and just reams of people. And they'll take your bid and they'll try to boil it down to numbers. And so one of the things that I like about your radical value is I had to change the perception of the Exxons and the Chevrons and the Arcos, change their perception of engineering from being just a process to deliver an offshore platform but what type of value could engineering bring to the outcome that they really wanted? So when you talk to the old company, they were most interested, what's the total installed cost of this platform? What's this thing gonna cost? And then what blew my mind is their first year production off of that platform normally was 25% of what the nameplate rating was on it. And they would have safety problems. So. I changed my whole sales pitch to the value I'm going to bring to you is I'm going to reduce your cost for the total complex and the schedule by 30%. So if you're talking a $4 billion complex, 30% becomes real money, even to an Exxon. Yeah. But then if you could also show them that your production facilities produce 90 to 95% of nameplate rating in the first year, unbelievable amount of money comes back into that oil company and it pays that platform off in three years instead of seven or eight years. Yeah. Now, now you're talking 
I like to talk on a level of ideas instead of counting drawings in an engineering firm. Yeah, when you're I, when you're delivering those kind of customer outcomes, you can't charge enough for your engineering. You can't. You no. They're, they're, <laughs> you to to not pay for yourself. It's not uh, possible to be so expensive, and um, that's what we. I love that story because your diff your differentiation was your culture the fact that you brought engineering and solved the business problems mm -hmm. and you used the culture to do that and everybody told you that oh, that's too touchy-feely especially in that oil industry which is you know full of knuckle draggers right oh yeah it's just yeah there's no whole hands and humming in the offshore oil engineering <laughs> but the the key thing that you wanted to be able to do and i was able to do is to get to that C-suite like you were talking about, get above the purchasing agents, get above the project engineers, and get into the C-suite where you can talk ideas and price is not even of concern. It's like, how are we going to deliver the outcome that changes the bottom line for a Chevron or for an Oxy, that type of thing? Yeah. So. Uh, huge deal. And, and in your book, Culture Code Champions, which I recommend to anybody, by the way, uh, because culture is so important. Um, you talk about this people first culture and that Gore, uh, one of my first jobs, it was kind of people and value first culture. And they were maniacal about benefiting the customers and business outcomes for customer. Where were, where were people in that language and where were the customers in language? Well, our vision statement, I think, is rather unique. The vision statement was our quest, so it means we're never going to be done with it. Our quest is to embody a culture that inspires super motivated people to make heroes of clients, suppliers, partners, and other Mustangers. We called ourselves Mustangers. For your people, if you don't have a name for yourselves, name yourselves. It's part of building a team mentality. But from that vision statement, we wanted to make heroes of our suppliers who are normally not treated well. <laughs> and we also wanted to make heroes of our clients. But what I, and then take care of each other. But one of the things that I would emphasize to people is that the only reason there was for Mustang to exist was for us to create customer value. If we weren't creating customer value, there was no reason for us. And people tend in companies to get inward focused and, hey, I'm, I'm in this group and I'm doing this and this is what the real job is. But no, the real job is taking care of that customer on the outside and people get caught up inside the company and they lose that focus. So we push that all the time. The only reason we're around whether you're in HR or you're in purchasing, you're in design, you're in engineering, is to create value for that customer. Yeah. So how do you do that within the organization and stay outward facing? Yeah, so that kind of gets to my culture is really important. And you know, the Miller-Hyman, when I was at Miller-Hyman, I was there for just sort of nine years. And so mm -hmm. I was one of, during that course of thing, 250, maybe 300 consultants like myself. And when we would get together for our annual meetings, everybody agreed that the part of the Miller-Hyman methodology that salespeople the world over were worst at was understanding the customer's outcomes. Yes. 
<laughs> and right. So it wasn't. And then I, after leaving, I talked with people from all the competing methodologies and they're bad at it too. So it's not a Miller Hyman shortcutting shortcoming. It's a salespeople shortcoming. And then I saw this, um, uh, McKinsey research from like 2012 and 13 and boards of directors, directors, 22.8% of directors even understood the value that they delivered, that their company delivered for its customers. So it's top to bottom that we are self-absorbed, inwardly focused. And so a culture that makes you outwardly focused gives you this sustainable advantage that a surprisingly small number of customers, companies well, I, they have. I, I came up with a lot of short phrases to help people understand the big picture. Yep. And I would try to explain the big picture to people and it would just go over their head. So I, as I used to start painting by numbers. Let's fill yep. in all the little blue spaces in this picture. Then we'll fill in the yellow. Eventually you're going to get the big picture of what we're doing. But the making heroes philosophy they could understand that between departments and silos. How do I make a hero? How do I work that handoff so I take care of that other person? And if you get a culture of making heroes, now you're going to try and transfer that. How do I make a hero of this client? And it's not, it's being other oriented. So you're trying to put yourself in that other person's shoes internally and then externally to suppliers and clients. And so that's where the culture helps you start to develop that yeah and i could give it one example of something that i started which i had to fight my project managers for was a cost effectiveness plan so as they were working a design and they would come up with an idea so say we're working for conoco well an engineer would say well for texaco for this application we did such and such and it would save conoco a lot of money or it would be safer or it would save schedule if Conoco would do it. And I had them start putting those things on a list because you had to capture them as they came up yep. as people were talking. And every week we would take that list to the client. We'd say, hey, could you approve us to do this like Exxon or like Texaco or like Arco or like BP? And most of the time they'd say, no, <laughs> you have to do it the Conoco way. And so we'd put a no, but it would show the cost, schedule, and safety possibilities. Well, when we get further along in the project, and maybe it wasn't going to go forward because it was going to cost too much, then we would bring that list back to them. It was amazing how many they could change to a yes. <laughs> but my project managers didn't want to do these lists. They said, Bill, that's just standard engineering what we do. I said, yes, but I can take that 15-page list to any client and say, look at all these check marks here. We saved over half of our engineering cost by the client implementing these ideas. It means our brain's turned on. It means we're thinking about value for you, the client, without you having to try and get us to do it. So that's like pushing a rope. Yeah. So if they could see that we're pulling it and we're going to pull them along and we're going to show them good ideas. Now you're getting to where you're talking ideas and you're talking that radical value yeah. you know, that you're trying to talk about. And I actually just had uh, an episode where we talked to somebody who, who talked about quantifying the customer outcomes, dollarizing the customer mm -hmm. outcomes. So I've told this, you've told me this story before and I've shared it because when you dollarize the benefits, the, the customer outcomes, it's, it's black and white. Um, the, the idea, 
you know, going back to what we talked about earlier that, you know, culture is a touchy-feely, kumbaya, I'm not paying for your culture. But you know what? The culture gets you these outcomes. That's why you want to hire us. Not for, not because we've got happy engineers, but because we have productive, customer-focused, make-you-a-hero engineers. And it's the same thing. And here's the dollars attached. Well, and, and the culture is getting everybody to come to work every day with their brain turned on open to change, open to bring value to that project, not just going through the standard steps of the process and trying to get through them, but actually applying, you know, the resources and the background and the knowledge to that problem. Yeah. And for a client, yeah. they, they can't push you to do that. It has to come from you. Yeah, totally. Um, so we, we both are kind of, Miller Hyman sales process, sales methodology lovers. But as a consultant, I was part of, of implementations where the client bought all the Miller Hyman training, bought the, the uh, cultural adoption plan, bought the coaching, bought the consulting, mm -hmm. and two companies side by side who'd essentially bought the same set of stuff. Um, actually, it turns out that at least as many failed to meet expectations as succeeded. And you at Mustang made it successful and you're kind Correct. of a ra raving fan. Mm -hmm. And I maintain, and you can agree or disagree, I, I, I want you to tell me your thoughts, but I think the difference was the culture, all that process and methodology was placed into a cultural context. And when the culture wasn't customer focused, wasn't customer outcome focused, there, the process gets you a little bit of improvement, but doesn't get you what you expected. When you put that same organization and framework and rigor and discipline in a culture where it's pointed in the right direction, that's when it really bears fruit. And, it, and I agree. One of the things I say is a sales process like Miller Hyman will mint you money. And the big way that I think it helps you mint money is it gets you to kill things that you shouldn't be chasing very early so that you're focused on the ones where you can win. That sales process forces you to look at your strengths and your weaknesses and ask the right questions. But that's where I think then culture can exponentially increase what you determine and what you find in there. And I like one of the sayings that you had is, there's a saying we had culture each strategy for breakfast. Yeah. And it's because uh, the Fleur Daniels, the McDermott's, the Bechtel's, they had strategy out the wazoo and we kicked their butt on all kinds of large international projects. And so I could always say culture each strategy for breakfast because they had the strategy, they had all the connections up through the C-suite but they didn't have the culture and the team building that we had. But you've twisted that saying a little bit where you say value culture, eats methodology, a sales methodology for breakfast. And I think what happens is when you start asking those questions and your culture is one where you've busted the silos and you have good communication across all of the different pieces of the company, what we did to implement Miller Hyman is we formed what I call full throttle teams. So to me, the salesperson is a unique 
talented like the driver in a race car. They'll go knock on any door. They'll talk to anybody. Whereas the engineer is not going to talk to anybody, but that salesperson will. And so around them, I put a project manager. I put a couple of young guns. These are people under 30 years of age. So they're learning how the sales process works. I put some administrative assistance. So you had some team to keep that driver out there doing what they did best. Get in front of the client, find out this information. Salespeople listen a lot closer than anybody else in an organization to the client. It's, it's like inbred in them that they're listening for nuances and things. And if you put them out there trying to get answers to these questions in the Miller-Hyman blue sheet, while they're asking those questions, they'll be listening a lot more intently yeah. than anybody else. And when they bring information back to share it, they can amplify those little twinges that they felt. Yep. And, a, and an ops person or somebody else in that team is going to say, oh, I know, I know what that's coming from. That's coming from this situation that happened. Yep. And did you, did you ever have a situation where, the, yeah, did the team around the salespeople, were they talking to customers and could, could they add information into that blue sheet as well? And so what I did is I got it to where the secretaries were talking to the secretaries and the client, the designers were talking to people, the engineers were, the purchasing people were talking to purchasing. So we were doing what we call zippering the client top to bottom at every level we were getting input. And I'll give you a one example. We were chasing a job with British Petroleum and we were like a 43 man company. So very early. Yeah. This company, this is this was punching way above our weight. It was going to take 95 people to staff the project, but we were chasing it anyway. And we had done a little project for BP on a platform that was producing 100,000 barrels a day. And so we had to install some equipment. Well, when you shut down 100,000 barrels a day, you better not shut it down for very long. And one of our engineers was over in the hallway and he heard a BP person complaining about one pipe spool that they had to go cut and weld. And it costs them an extra hour and a half of downtime for this 100,000 barrel a day oil facility. And he came back and in the blue sheet meeting, he says, man, I heard this. I don't know if it's a problem or not. And uh, I knew who the favorites were for this project. And I knew BP wanted those favorites. So I said, ah, they're going to bring this up. So we went and found the drawing that we had done for that spool. And it turned out that they had not built it to the drawing. We had actually caught the weird little thing that was wrong. So we go to the presentation. And in the 11th hour of the presentation, we've got everybody eating out of our hands. And one of the BP people who liked another engineering firm brought that up. So well, what about that pipe spool on section sets? Da, 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 da. And I said, well, glad you asked me that. And I put it up on the screen and I showed that the pipe spool, we had designed it correctly, but they had built it wrong in the fab yard. And the project engineer had taken out the field welds where you could have rotated things to make them fit. And so I, I thought that we might lose the project, but there were other things I could get. So I didn't want to throw that engineer under the bus. I said, the engineer did a good job taking all these field welds out because that shortened the installation time. However, he should have had inspectors in the yard to have caught that this thing was built incorrectly. 
And so what I wanted to do is if we lost the job, I wanted to get inspection on the next project. But by not throwing them under the bus and actually making that project engineer look like a hero, even though he'd screwed up in BP, if you get torn down, you're like torn down forever. And I think that helped sell it. We won that project that made us double in size. But it was because we had different people in the organization listening to hear something and then bringing it back and plugging it into the salesperson and management. Yeah, you know, I talk about that a lot in Radical Value is that you have a dozen, two dozen different roles that touch your customer. Only two or three of which are in sales. And the rest of them, have relationships with people sales will never have at a trust level that sales could never hope to replicate. And if you just say, shut up, stay in your lane, do your job and come back to the office, you are, you know, as a former ranger, would you ever have that kind of visibility on an enemy position and and not give anybody a radio? (laughs) No. And the Rangers, everybody knew the mission and we tried to get it that way. So a secretary could talk to the the CEO's secretary and say, Hey, what what are you hearing about us in the hallways? Cause she's sitting right outside. Yeah. I mean, you've got scores of good input. Yeah. Yeah. You've got scores of forward observers. Yes. On your team. And if you send those forward observers out and give them a pair of binoculars, but don't give them a radio. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Most dangerous thing on the battlefield is one, a single person with a radio because you can't find them, but they can report on everything. (laughs) That's right. So, but one of the testaments to the culture that I noticed uh, from the background is that after you exited the company as the CEO, um, you were on the board, but the company continued to double yes. after you'd <laughs> left, right? So that is testament to the fact that you weren't the leader, you had built a culture, and the culture continued after your departure. And that's, that's a big deal. Yeah, we wanted to create a culture that created what we call leaders of character, top to bottom in the organization. And so every employee just wants to be trusted and be respected. And so they had that from day one when they came on board. We had a good method of hiring called Operation Horse Thief, which we've talked about, where people that we had, we said, who's the five best people you know? Because we knew that they would have our DNA. So the referral hiring process meant that we didn't turn people over. So in our industry, 45% turnover per year was normal. We were at two to 5%. So huge savings to the bottom line. But for our clients, the fact that we didn't turn people over meant that we got more efficient every time we worked for them. The same teams were together. The communication was tight. And those are the things that built this culture top to bottom to where nobody wanted to lose it. So yeah, when I backed out, we had a young guns program by year group under age 30 people by year group got to know each other cross trained got to know different values and different silos that you have within the company and they could bust them because they'd come up together as year groups well those young guns ended up being in charge of everything at mustang uh, a lady that i'd hired in 2020 12 became CEO. She wow. took it from 2 billion to 5 billion. Now she's out, has started her own company. 
but even internationally, that culture, we would send sort of a cadre of people to help open that office. So culture was right up front from the beginning. And uh, when our India office, Mumbai, won the Christmas tree decorating contest, <laughs> we, we knew we'd broken some cultural barriers. There you go. That's but, cool. it was, but it was all, you know, we want to compete. We want to be part of this company. And uh, the fact that it's just continued, now it's $8 billion, uh, just continued to grow is a testament to that culture. Once it's going, it's a flywheel. You got to keep pushing on it. But once everybody's on board and that flywheel spinning, it's tough to shut it down. That's great. Well, Bill, uh, we're running up on some time and I could keep talking with you forever, but what did we miss? What do you want to say that we like didn't get to? Well, I think that the key thing is the philosophy is how do you make your client a hero? And that should be the whole focus of everybody in your company is what will make that client a hero? And if you don't know, you need to get into that organization and start talking to people top to bottom. Hey, what are you graded on? How do you get promoted? What's, what's the biggest deal in that company? Because whatever your assumption is, if you haven't been on that side of the table, it's probably a little bit off. Yeah. And that's optimistic. You, Maybe a lot off. <laughs> yeah. Could be a lot. Like most engineers felt it was all price. And so they're trying to compete on price and skinny and scope down instead of saying, no, it needs to be a working final product. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh is, is that what they're interested in? It's not just price. No. And we won our major international bids and it was never won based on price. It was based on that energy, that enthusiasm, that culture, that other orientedness that the sales process we brought all those people together in the sales process so the client would see how we were working together. And then when it got down to the final two, it always comes down to a tie. Somebody's yep. got to win. Our energy and enthusiasm and that proven culture that they had seen through the bid process helped tip the scales for us to win over much larger companies. That's great. Well, Bill, how, how do people get a hold of you? How do people get a hold of your book? Um, uh, the, the easiest way is culturecodechampions.com. And I have a culture assessment tool there that people can take for free and it'll show them where they're strong and where they're weak. Uh, it can also show them how many dollars they could add to their bottom line if they got intentional about culture because ours was four times. So I say most people can double their bottom line if they'll just work intention on their culture. And it doesn't take a lot of dollars to do it with the methods that I show. Yeah. Uh, culturecodechampions.com is probably the best way. That's great. You know, I, I tell people everybody, every company has a culture. Yeah. And it, it doesn't, and not many of them are good ones. So uh, you could be purposeful or not purposeful and you'll still have a culture. What kind yeah, do you the, want? What kind do you want? The culture is how you get things done now. And it yeah. might be sort of ad hoc. Yeah. But you could intentionally create the culture that's going to improve lives, improve the bottom line, and take care of your customers. Wouldn't that be a lot more fun? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, Bill, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming back on the show. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where we believe that value only exists in your customer's mind, which means your success is all in your customer's head. 
Thanks and go out and have a high value day. Well, it ain't easy, cause value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're gonna drive both of you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues, cause you'll be singing those old don't know value blues. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.